Hey, this is Matt. This is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? A podcast where we get around to resolving our pop culture blind spots, one episode at a time. Um, so before we get into uh, the topic of uh, our first uh, episode, why don't you uh, talk about the impetus for the podcast? Sure. The idea here is, is to for us to finally visit some of the pop culture that we've missed for whatever reason. Uh, we're going to be talking about movies, uh, movies, movies and films, <laughs> uh, movies, TV, uh, books, music, whether it's you know, a specific album or, or a band. Um, the idea here really is, is that uh, these are things we've read about, things we're aware of, but have not taken the time to personally um, formulate an opinion on a couple of, you know, personal examples. Uh, until a few months ago, I'd never seen Boondock Saints, which I avoided specifically because of the people in college who loved Boondock Saints. <laughs> uh, turns out I was right. It's really bad. <laughs> uh, but now I know that personally and I have an opinion on it. Um, another one would be Buffy. For whatever reason, I didn't engage with it when it was on. I was the perfect age for it, and in hindsight, was absolutely uh, the audience for it, and I just missed out on it, and um, didn't watch it till a couple years ago, and, you know, do I regret not watching it? It doesn't really matter. I eventually got to it. That's <laughs> that's the beauty of things, right, is, is the stuff doesn't go away, and it's easier to get to than ever, so um, now we can play catch-up. Sweet. Um, I know uh, you sent me a text asking if I wanted to do this with you. So, you know, how did you, you know, what made you think of this idea? And, and, and I know what got you excited about. It. Obviously, we're 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 junkies, and we can't get enough of this stuff. But um, maybe we shouldn't keep calling ourselves junkies. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next week's episode is heroin. <laughs> I've never tried heroin, but we're uh, we're gonna go. Go for you, the listener. We're going <laughs> to shoot it right between our toes. So our wives don't know what we're really doing. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I think this idea has sort of been kicking around in one form or another for a while. Um, I think Unspooled is a, is a great podcast that you and I have both been listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sort of been making a mental note as they go through the AFI uh, top 100, which ones I haven't seen and saving those episodes, um, you know, looking beyond movies or beyond any sort of ranking of essential, you know, there's a lot of gaps to fill. Um, I know for me personally, um, and certainly conversations that we've just had in general, you're, 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 you've taken deeper dives into certain things than I have and, you know, vice versa. So I just thought it was a, a fun excuse to finally get to some of this stuff. Sure. I think for me, too, that I'm always looking for reasons or, or things to point me in the direction of what I should watch, read, or mm-hmm. listen to next. Uh, because one of the great things about living right now is that, you know, we have this seemingly unlimited access to everything we could possibly want to watch. So sometimes it's good to have something that's pointing you in a direction. And I always want to be you know, hopefully retain this curiosity about new things. And so I figured 
doing something like this also kind of forces us to maybe do something that is a blind spot, but also maybe something we wouldn't actively uh, pursue if we weren't um, talking about it in this context. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, and, and, you know, who knows where we'll go, uh, but we have talked about doing things like, you know, early 2000s pop music and, mm-hmm. uh, and other things like that where we probably wouldn't choose to listen to. Sure. Uh, but still fascinated by. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I think and it's, 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 you know, using that example, you know, when I was 13, I was not interested in, in understanding the, the broader relevance of uh, boy bands and Britney Spears and that kind of thing. But I think now just to sort of listen to it and examine it as a, a snapshot of, of culture at the time, I think is, is really fun. And more to that point, when I was 13, I was really dumb. And, <laughs> you know, I was like, Metallica is the best. Um, why, why branch out? Um, you know, I think it's a way for us to explore those rabbit holes and, you know, you know, piggyback off of things we are very familiar with and we have loved our whole lives and sort of what influenced it and what, um, what did it influence and, you know, how do these, how do things branch out or, or sort of come back around to each other? Yeah, definitely. Sweet. So, um, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. Um, so for, uh, our very first episode, we're going to be talking about THX 1138. You mean thicks? Thicks. Or is it Thex? Thex, Thex. Thex, Thex. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so weird. It is weird that they actually make it a word. Yeah. Um, and so we're obviously both of the age where Star Wars was this crucial part of our childhood, mm-hmm. as is most human beings <laughs> at this point in time. Right. Uh, but um, for people that are do have this big appetite for pop culture, you'd think we would have watched George Lucas's first movie. Uh, yet we never, we never watched it. No, we did not. And why? Why is that? Why did you? What was there a reason why you hadn't seen it? Or, no, or I what? Don't, what is your even? What was your familiarity with it beyond knowing it as his first movie? Or was that it? I I mean I knew it was uh, about um, the dystopian future. It was influenced by 1984. Mm-hmm. I, I was somewhat familiar with its visuals, I guess. Uh, but beyond that, I don't think I knew too, too much about it. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know why I've, I've never watched it. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think for me, obviously it being his first movie. So yeah. it was just this thing that was always around. But then when I, I read, you know, like the, when I read the description of it and I was a little kid, I was like, that sounds really boring. There's no, <laughs> there's no lightsabers in it. Um, and then when I was older and maybe more willing to start going down that road, it was also peak um, anti-Lucas sentiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in the middle of the prequels coming out. And then when it was re-released in 2004 on DVD, there were um, CGI additions and edits made. And I was yes. like, fuck it. No, I'm not. Yeah. Just leave it alone. <laughs> um, I suddenly had a... Um, an opinion about a movie I hadn't seen before. Um, and I just, I just, you know, kind of pushed it out of of mind. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should say too, that we watched the special edition, uh, uh, for this podcast because the, I, I can't, I don't believe that the original is available to watch. Uh, I mean, we could have 
Yeah. Like track down a tape on eBay or something. Sure, sure, um, sure. But not like a, a higher quality version or anything. No. I mean, like, uh, I don't think any movie he's made at this point is available yeah. prior to some sort of, uh, even American Graffiti, I think, they did something. Really? I, th- I, I thought I read that. It's possible. I, it could yeah. be, I mean, yeah. I think it's fairly insignificant. George is a tinkerer. He is a tinkerer. Yeah. Yeah. There are, um, if you look, you know, actually I think it's, there's, um, there's some Jawas riding a Ronto in the parking lot at Mel's drive-in. <laughs> no? I, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Great. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, THX. Yeah. Let's go. You have asked, are we happy? Are we happy and effective? Consultation with leading experts in the field makes it perfectly clear perfectly clear that we are all now programmed for perfect happiness perfect happiness perfect happiness perfect happiness what did they do to you there are of course occasional technical or electronic errors in programming and or surveillance which produce perverse exceptions First, they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching, then indulging in various sexual acts and the ultimate perversion, love for such extreme... So what is it about? Well, let's talk about this. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's not a whole lot of exposition. It really throws you right into it. We are following THX1138 and his his mate, La. La. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... I can't remember her, her suffix, just her prefix, L-U-H. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is, as you said, a very 1984-inspired dystopia where people are heavily medicated. Uh, emotions are kept in check through drugs and sort of mindless entertainment. Uh, THX, who's played by Robert Duvall, is not feeling well. It turns out that his his mate, uh, his his sort of state issued mate, has been deliberately reducing their uh, mandated drug intake and allowing them to feel feelings for the first time. She's sort of had this epiphany that that they're being kept from something important, from something vital. Well, I mean, the obvious parallels to 1984. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he really cherry picks. Yeah, between yeah, cher- sure. uh, 1984 and. Brave New World mm-hmm. sort of assembly line society. Um, yeah. The first thing that I thought was, you know, that really uh, I was kind of taken aback by was the lack of exposition. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, they really don't explain much, much of anything. Um, and I actually uh, have a clip right here that, um, um, that we can uh, listen to that kind of gets into that a bit. Great. I contemplated the idea, which Francis was very enthusiastic about, of doing the film in Japan. Japanese films are interesting to us because they were made by a culture for itself. And the problem that George and I found with science fiction 
films that we saw is that they felt that they had to explain these strange rituals to you, whereas a Japanese film would just have the ritual and you'd have to figure it out for yourself. So that was Walter Murch, uh, and he was the co-writer with George Lucas mm -hmm. on THX 1138. Uh, but he's more famously known for uh, being an editor, and he's edited a lot of Coppola stuff like mm -hmm. The Conversation and Godfather 2. Um, but he also wrote this great book called In the Blink of an Eye, uh, which is, uh, you know, his perspective on film editing. Sure. And, and which is also a, a very sort of, it's very philosophical as well. Sure, sure, um, sure. He kind of talks around the subject. It's right. It's pretty great. But I thought it was kind of interesting how um, a lot of their approach for this was to not reveal things. Mm -hmm. And obviously in the 70s, like the big influence for a lot of New Hollywood in the 70s and... Um, uh, especially the big five or so um, well-known directors, De Palma, Spielberg, uh, Coppola, Lucas, and Scorsese. Scorsese. <laughs> uh, so uh, oftentimes they talk about their influence being the French New Wave. Mm -hmm. But Lucas seems to be always more of a, a Kurosawa guy. You know, episode um, four or Star Wars. Sure. Um where he lifted heavily from uh, Hidden Fortress. Right. I mean, he even at one point um, entertained the idea of bringing in um, Toshiro Mifune to yeah. to play Obi-Wan Kenobi mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and even have him speak Japanese. And he had ideas of sort of along the lines here of not explaining this world we're entering with THX, even with Star Wars. Originally, he wanted to be very alien in, a, in that uh, it would be subtitled. Um, characters wouldn't be speaking English, um, and they wouldn't explain why. You know, when we think about Lucas now, a lot of times, un unfortunately, it's colored by people's perception of the prequels. And one of the main problems with the prequels is um, its overuse of exposition and explaining mm -hmm. things that maybe we don't need explained. Um, but even if you go back to the original Star Wars, a lot of what makes it great is it feels like this lived-in world that... Um, he doesn't go out of his way to explain all the details and intricacies of it. And the force is sort of explained in the abstract. Yep. Um, so it was, it was interesting to see this, um, which is even more abstract in some ways, uh, or as Lucas himself likes to say, experimental, you know, reading, reading up on this in anticipation of watching it, uh, there's a lot of things going on. He, he really talks about, you know, not being interested in narrative. He talks about visual tone poems, cinema verite, documentary style. Um, a bit of background here. So this is this film was born out of a student film. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it's it's important, you know, within the context of things here to know that George Lucas was like this whiz kid in film school. Mm -hmm. He um, he was just racking up accolades left and right, and he was doing these very experimental things again that were very visual mm -hmm. and audio centric um they weren't traditional narratives and he was developing a reputation for himself um from there essentially got an internship with coppola yeah um well um <clears throat> i think we should i mean it's funny that the, the full name of his short film which is the basis for thx is actually electronic labyrinth thx 1138 for eb yes <laughs> Which is a mouthful, I guess. Uh, at the very least. Yes. It's certainly not... Uh, but You wouldn't see it on a poster. <laughs> no. But it's even more abstract than THX is. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it's readily available on um, online. So it, uh, you know, I suggest if you're interested at all that to seek it out. It's only like 15 minutes long. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's, um, I would, uh, I mean, whatever. It's almost a 50 year old movie. So there's sure. no such thing as a spoiler at this point, but it's essentially, um, the blueprint for the last act of the film. Yeah. So, um, it doesn't really, it really yeah. doesn't matter, but you know, maybe watch the movie first and then go back. So you don't sure, have sure. the ending spoiled for you. Um, so I guess Coppola had seen it and he was impressed by it. Mm-hmm. So he brought, um, Lucas along to work on, uh, the rain people. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> and that had a lot of kind of overlap in crew. And he was the one that was kind of helping Lucas get the full movie made. Sure. Um, but uh, one of my favorite anecdotes is, um, you know, because Lucas had never really written anything before. And so Coppola goes, well, you just got to write a screenplay. And Lucas goes, I don't know how to write a screenplay. So Coppola's like, just go write it. So Lucas went off and he wrote it. And then he came back and gave it to Coppola. And Coppola's just like, yeah, you don't know how to write a screenplay. Right. Uh, which is frustrating for a lot of reasons. Sure. Um, I, you know, similarly... Um I read George the George Lucas biography, George Lucas, a life mm-hmm. by um, Brian J. Jones over the summer. Um, and there is a quote, uh, George Lucas talks about hating writing. Um, yeah. I'm not a writer. I hate writing. I like cinema verite documentaries, non-story, non-character tone poems, um, you know, and having mostly suppressed um, and unfair rage about the prequels, <laughs> but still cling on to man. They're just, they're not well-written uh, anytime there's, there's evidence of George Lucas talking about how much he hates writing. It's mind-numbing. Uh, so I guess that's when they brought on Walter Murch. Yep. To co-write it with him. Um, but you had brought up, you know, Lucas's talking about uh, Cinema Verite and the documentary stuff. And I believe, like, when you watch the movie, it's kind of split between this, um, like, these long takes where the camera's kind of locked down. A um, lot of wide shots with a lot of space. So really, really um, tightly composed compositions. And he kind of goes back and forth between that and then some handheld, more verite stuff like he was talking about. And in interviews, he did say that he kind of wanted to have this documentary feel while knowing that he was still doing these kind of um, little more mannered kind of compositions. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, I was shocked by how pretty a lot of this movie was Mm. because as visually stimulating as Star Wars was, um, and even, uh, I mean, American Graffiti is full of these iconic images, but not necessarily iconic compositions. And to see a George Lucas movie that appears to have so much thought put into the um, what the camera is doing, as opposed to what it's capturing, sure. um, was really interesting. And it, it's really split between, it feels like the intersection... Of, um, you know, sort of 2001 inspired visuals and a more guerrilla style approach to filmmaking because it, he was working with a lot of available assets. A lot of it was filmed in the uh, San Francisco subway system as it was being constructed. There was a, a, a civic center that Frank Lloyd Wright had, had just finished. The idea being if we, if we shoot these things in the right way, we can trick the 20th century into looking like the 25th. So sort of, yeah, being very deliberate about where he's placing people and cameras, but also, um, you know, we're going to work with natural light when we can. We're going to use whatever setting we can get access to. It's really interesting and really resourceful and hints to a lot of things that 
kind of became hallmarks of his career for better or worse. Sure. You know, because in that clip we played earlier, he, we, he talked about, oh, they had thought about filming in Japan. Mm-hmm. And and that wasn't, you know, didn't seem like a, a it would ever become a reality. So when they started locking down their locations, all about becoming, it became about how to shoot practically. So mm-hmm. like you said, uh, there's a lot of available light and they, it shows because there's a lot of like um, darkness in the frame and uh, a lot of shadows um, uh, while also shooting in these areas that are really like, uh, high contrast where they're really bright in, in, in the white room too. Uh, so there's like a scene later on in the movie where um, <clears throat> uh, Robert Duvall is being, uh, it's kind of, they're kind of like, it's kind of like prison. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of um, like a prison, but it's all white. Uh, and, and so it kind of gives you the sense. Um, and from what I've read and, um, Lucas talked about how they could move the camera anywhere and it would look identical. And they use that to uh, their advantage because it disorients not only the characters, but the viewer, because no matter where you turn the camera, it was going to be identical. So sure. they could always shoot in the same direction, just move the characters around and get the coverage they needed. Mm-hmm. But they have these massive expanses of uh, of just white and characters dressed in white with shaved heads and um, these terrifying like robot creatures with like these silver faces. Mm-hmm. Really primitive looking, but still really effective and, and creepy. Yeah, I, I think there's um, the obvious sort of visual cue that this is a culture where in there's no sense of individuality. Everybody looks the same, they dress the same, they all have the shaved heads, but similarly the body of enforcement are these literally faceless uh, foot soldiers. I mean, they have these chrome faces that are have you know shapes but there's no eyes there's no mouth it's just um it's just very flat there's no expression there and yeah i mean it is as you said it's it's primitive and terrifying at the same time uh so i mean we're talking a lot about you know some of the the visual stuff here and and a lot of behind the scenes stuff like we said there's not a lot of narrative to hang your hat on necessarily but there's there's a lot going on here so this was released in 71 was shot late in 69, I believe. So we're talking, you know, Vietnam, post-civil rights. And there's some, there's some interesting race stuff going on in this movie. Yeah. Um, I guess let's talk about that. Uh, so at, there's early on, we see Robert Duvall watching holograms and it's very dumb. There's no substance to the entertainment that these people are consuming. It's just a thing to keep everybody passive. But the performers we see are all black there's a, a a woman dancing naked there's a comedy duo and it's very there's nothing no real substance to the comedy they're doing it's just very simple later when they're in that white room that sort of prison where robert duvall's character and sen who is played by donald pleasance who's kind of the antagonist yeah um are trying to escape and there's there's no walls to this prison it's just an expansive white void and they're making their way through it and they encounter another person who is black. And as they're approaching them, Donald Pleasance looks terrified and you start to think maybe they've never seen a black person in real life. But beyond that, this character, uh, who is SRT is his name says that he's a hologram. Uh, and that the way he speaks about it, it's interesting. Is he not a real person or are they saying that in the same way that everybody else in this world is manufactured, uh, that black people are manufactured and then indoctrinated to believe they are just these holograms. And they sort of have this 
this otherness kind of programmed into them. It's weird because it almost seems like he doesn't think he's a real human being. He believes that he is uh, this abstract concept and he's been retired because he says something like the, the comedy bit he was doing got stale and they didn't like it anymore. Um, it's very strange. It's really strange, especially like coming from, you know, the super, super white Star Wars and even American Graffiti. Sure. Um, to have these kind of like um, civil rights kind of stuff. Um things that were kind of bubbling over at the time mm-hmm. and to have uh, them sort of uh, abstractly talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it's in a way sort of commenting on an acceptance of the African community as entertainers. But then beyond that, you know, uh, I, I assume any number of record collections in white America at the time would have albums that, you know, reflected black music, mm-hmm. but you know, would they, necessarily be seen socially with these people or or, you know what happens if you know they don't they talk around it kind of Mm -hmm. i mean just kind of he becomes part of the um well he he tries to escape with robert duvall's character yeah he knows the way out yeah yeah um or so he claims Uh, (laughs) um and so um beyond that it doesn't really get into it but i mean the movie also doesn't really it doesn't dig too deep on everything it's it's all again kind of told abstractly yeah it hints at all of these larger horrors of the world Mm -hmm. without ever taking a deep dive into any of them it is very interested in allowing the sound and the visuals to set the mood and tell what story there is to tell and what's interesting too is like uh lucas has said that it wasn't intended to be about the future. It was intended to be about the present. There's obviously all this commentary about consumerism and you know um, how he felt the media was kind of dictating things in you know 1971. Yeah, uh, which is um, kind of prescient, I guess. Yeah, and there's a lot of prescient stuff in here. Right off the bat, we're introduced to smart appliances. Yeah, I mean they open their cupboard uh, or their medicine cabinet. And it says in a very passive voice what's wrong. And it's, yeah. it's you know, it's giving them uh, advice on how to up their doses. And mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a constant, like, uh, there's all, because a lot of the exposition in, in the storytelling comes through and intercoms and, and robots and other voices coming from other places. And a lot of the sentiment is buy more, buy more now and be happy. Right. So even uh, religion has sort of been watered down to sound bites and there's a, this constant there's like a, a a confessional a literal confession booth like on a street corner it's mm-hmm. like a phone booth and there's a a portrait of of christ that's just speaking in a, a very it, it's all it's all pre-programmed yes. it's not actually listening and in this religious spiritual figure ends the confession with blessings of the state blessings of the masses thou art the subject of the divine created in the image of man by the masses for the masses Things haven't been going well. Yes, fine. How could I be so wrong? My mate has been acting very strange. I can't explain it. Yes. I haven't been feeling very well myself. Yes, I understand. I don't know, maybe it's me. Yes, fine. I needed some Panora last night. I feel as if something... Excellent. ...odd were happening to me. 
something that yes I can't understand could you be more specific the sedatives I'm taking etrosine but it doesn't seem strong enough I have a hard time concentrating you are a true believer blessings of the state please forgive me. blessings of the masses Let us be thankful we have an occupation to fill. Work hard. Increase production. Prevent accidents. And be happy. It's got a kind of we the people, by the people, for the people kind of thing going on. But also, um, Mm -hmm. we're all one, we're all the same, but not in a positive humanity has come together, but in a very like... Yeah, we're just it's uh, but that also continues with let us be thankful we have an occupation to fill. Yes. (laughs) Which is uh, pretty creepy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of similar in some ways to 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 they live with the whole, uh, you know, reassuring people like, yes, buy more things. You will be happy with these things and a consumerism. Right. Or even in Brave New World where um, Ford has replaced the idea of God because he created the assembly line and they're yeah. all sort of coming off of the assembly line themselves. And yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you briefly touched upon it, but, uh, I guess we should get back to Donald, um, Pleasant's yes. um, character, mm-hmm. um, who is, uh, I guess really good with kind of, uh, computers. And so he kind of gets into the system and alters it so he becomes uh, Robert Duvall's roommate. Because he's doing this, and also because Robert Duvall, because his dosage has been lowered by his um, previous roommate, La, um, they both kind of get in trouble, and that's how they get into this prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so the back half of the movie is them essentially trying to escape. And eventually, Duvall gets out, uh, and there's a kind of like a high-speed chase. This is all filmed in kind of like these old kind of uh, tunnels. Mm-hmm. Uh, all on location, um, and uh, apparently um, it was very dangerous. Uh, so all the um, all the stories from uh, everyone that worked on on THX, you know, said that they kind of worried for uh, the motorcycle driver's life because he flips over the car, and it, it looks pretty uh, pretty gnarly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess Lucas kept pushing him, and then the guy was like, oh, I'm fine. So it worked out for them. <laughs> but who knows? If he had died, then we would have no Star Wars. Possibly. It's yes. possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's more to say about Donald Pleasant's character. Um, sure. He's, he's sort of, his job is, is sort of uh, to observe people, right? Yeah. Um, and he is also... Uh, sort of deviating from the system in that he was intrigued by Robert Duvall's sort of dalliances with uh, subversive behavior. Uh, there's something unhinged about Donald Pleasant's character. And you're right, he uh, he was a hacker before there was a word for it. Uh, yeah. And he, he rigged this system so that um, they were put together because he saw something, uh, he, he saw a like-minded person. And when we get to that prison scene, what we see is is Donald Pleasance is making these sort of grand speeches to these other 
enemies of the state, people who are being isolated or removed from normal society because they're um, perversions of one kind or another. And he's he's talking a lot of big game and Robert Duvall is being very quiet. Um, what ends up happening is that Donald Pleasance has no conviction here. Robert Duvall has felt something real um, and, and realized that the world they're living in is just a fucking mess. Um, but when confronted with it, Donald Pleasant's caves really, and, and sort of allows himself to be brought back into the fold. Um, which is interesting cause he's, he, he does creepy so well in this movie and it's very, it's, it's probably one of the most emotional performances in it, but it's, it's sinister and it's unhinged and it's, it's dangerous in a way that, you know, uh, Robert Duvall and what's the, who plays La? Maggie McComey. Right. They, their, their rebellion is very uh, innocent and pure. Um, and you can sympathize with it. You know, they are being kept from themselves. And when they discover that there's something, you know, beautiful to it. And, you know, we see the scenes of them making love for the first time and it's it's uh it's very innocent that a lot of it is just the simple act of human contact. Just yep. them like putting hands it's on like each other. Trying to figure it out as they go. Exactly. But there is a kind of danger to Donald Pleasance's character, which is really interesting. And then and then when he, he's just spineless when he's up against the wall and mm-hmm. But it's a great it's a great performance. Yeah, though. it's great. So one interesting thing that that's right at the top of this movie is a clip from a Buck Rogers short. So what you're presented with is this very, you know, outdated, you know, even in 1971, very outdated concept of science fiction. It's very, it's very camp, mm-hmm. very pulpy. Um, it's all high adventure and, you know, uh, saving the world. And it's, it's positive and it's exciting and it's got this big triumphant score. And then it cuts to the opening credits of THX with this ominous music, even the, the credits roll sort of in the reverse direction that you're used to. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right away, it's kind of hitting you over the head with, um, this is not that. <laughs> this is not yeah. your, your you know, Saturday morning matinee sure. serial science fiction. Which it, uh, which is really fascinating because, you know, he uh, always said that one of the biggest influences on um, Star Wars was Buck Rogers. Right. Yeah. That swashbuckling kind of old style serials. Um, um Mixed with again Kurosawa, um, <clears throat> but I thought it was kind of weird. I didn't expect it, and I and at first I thought I was like, "Is this actually part of the movie?" Right. I I was confused as well. It felt it felt more modern than I was expecting. It seemed like a very um, like I'd expect that kind of shit from Tarantino, <laughs> <laughs> um, or um, you know, it's it's it was. But I mean, again, like, you know, this was, he was one of a handful of people at the vanguard of sort of remaking mm-hmm. movies in, you know, from the perspective of people who grew up on them. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the, they were the people who were raised on movies as opposed to the people who just invented movies. Sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was sort of a, it was an unexpected postmodern touch at the beginning yeah it's yeah it's really strange it is really strange but i think it's effective and sort of um sure. 
you know, does uh, a lot of the, it does some heavy lifting in terms mm-hmm. of expectations. And I wasn't sure if that was added for the special edition, but it was there always. Yeah. There's, um, I found a, a, a blog post about the movie while I was, um, reading up on it and it had a link to a very detailed breakdown of Mm -hmm. the original shots versus what was changed. Um, although even that Buck Rogers footage was different from what was there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, that tinkering's always a part of yeah. him. And so, uh, I, you know, I guess we can get into all the ways in which he altered it, too, um, from the original version. And the re-release was 2004. Yeah. Uh, and for the most part, he's adding, um, he's creating, uh, establishing shots. Uh, he's, he's adapting to... Or, or, He's, adapt- he's altering establishing shots to make them look more grandiose. Right, yeah. There's a lot of stuff with the assembly line that um, the THX works on to sort of flesh it out, to make it seem like there's more people working with him, to make the machines they're working on and with seem a little more impressive, I guess, yeah. than whatever. It's just more of everything. More, yeah. More it, people, more cars in the background. Mm-hmm. Um uh, unfortunately, it all sticks out like a sore thumb, just like the prequels uh, and also the um, the special editions, special of editions of the original trilogy. Um, there, it's all that kind of like late '90s or early 2000 com- CGI. Yeah, I think it's most offensive in the end during the the chase. Yeah, it's very out of place and, and mm-hmm. tonally very different. It's interesting because in interviews, he's always said. This is how I originally envisioned this, and I couldn't do it at the time because of these limitations. So therefore, I feel okay in making these changes. That was my original intent. I think what makes a lot of his early movies so memorable is the limitations that were placed on him. Mm -hmm. They wrote a script, and once they had done location scouting, they'd go and they'd rewrite scripts based off of their locations that they had available to them. Um, And the movie is so... um, kind of industrial and um, stark and minimal in a lot of ways. So that gives it a lot of its power is in the limitations that were presented to them. Uh, so it's it's always frustrating when he kind of goes, no, this is what it should be. And he, you know, with unlimited resources, goes in and, and fucks with these things. Right. And that's, there's a, a constant through line of his career where not only does he have limitations, he has... People close to him telling him when he's off the mark. Uh, his, you know, wife at the time, Marsha Lucas, who is an editor who's worked, she'd worked with Scorsese, she edited Star Wars, told him that there's no, there is no emotion in THX, and I don't like it. You're not letting audiences in, and he argued back that uh, there's not supposed to be. I think, you know, I think the emotion there is conveyed through the visuals and the sound. Yeah, ultimately, the f- movie didn't work with audiences. Yeah, I think critics were. F- kind of torn on it but um you know uh, in 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 reading in his biography and um in uh, easy riders raging bulls uh marcia talks about she never said i told you so but she knew it yeah um and the the great quote from lucas is something to the effect of you know getting an emotional response is easy all you have to do is um have a guy take out a kitten and wring its neck (laughs) and then he kind of, <laughs> out of spite, made something very sentimental um, in, a, in a way. American Graffiti had a lot of, 
you know, you don't think I can make a movie that people are going to love. I'm going to show you how easy it is and how stupid people are. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there was more to it than that. American sure. Graffiti doesn't come off as a cynical nostalgia grab. It seems like it's coming from, you know, that was his life. He was uh, the kid who, you know, cruised in hot rods. And yeah. It's all very honest, but... But you can see the through line through his whole career of his interests. You know, this movie ends with a car chase, and there are car chases in um, American Graffiti, uh, and there are chases in all of the Star Wars movies. Sometimes there are car chases in Star Wars movies, or they, you know, stand-ins for cars. But I think, too, you know, one of the big things with Lucas, and Coppola shares this, too, and this is probably why they became friends so quickly is this notion of just um, this small town kid that wants to escape this. Mm -hmm. And he's told he can't do these things. And he's always saying, oh, yeah, I'll show you. Right. Uh, And broadly speaking, you know, that's kind of what happens with Robert Duvall. He doesn't understand this world. Mm -hmm. It slowly opens up to him and he needs to escape it. And that carries through to American Graffiti. And uh, obviously with Luke Skywalker, Mm -hmm. this small town kid who wants to explore, uh, wants things greater. And he's told, no, you can't do those things. And because his aunt and uncle are murdered, he's like, no, I'm going to. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, that's like a constant in his sure. whole career. And even the uh, the idea of telling the story visually and through sound, it changes a bit, but it's all it's all there. With American sure. Graffiti, it goes from, you know, the, the, the more sort of, I mean, there's a bit of it there with the cinema verite sort of using using what's there for for lighting and sort of capturing a more live sort of feeling to these characters. But, you know, you're going from playing with these stark visuals to show this oppressed society to telling a story that's just, you know, overflowing with iconic imagery from the early 60s, from the cars, the clothes, the environments. You know, you're replacing this this sort of disembodied sounds of uh, robots and announcers and um technicians and thx to just a constant soundtrack and you know wolfman jack sort of piping in to to kind of color the background i mean is there i don't know if there's a scene in american graffiti where there's not a song playing yeah. it's, it's it's everywhere and then once you get to star wars the idea that like you said earlier the the lived in universe so mm-hmm. the the you know the the scrappy good guys are flying these just shitty junk box ships because they're whatever they can get their hands mm-hmm. on and the uh, the the empire is just very it's clean and stark and very much like the the society of THX it's sterile and mm-hmm. and bad and then the sound is this instead of the Buck Rogers sort of cheesy sound effects they they really went out of their way to to capture everything they could organically and it sort of builds this this soundscape that's unlike anything people had heard before but. Because it's based in something real, uh, it was accessible and made sense, and it sort of let people in. Yeah, um, and there's a lot of, and then maybe it's just the time and the equipment they had available, but there felt like there was some overlap in sound, even though there's completely different sound editors mm-hmm. for both, um, for you know THX and his later movies. Sure, but there are some definite sounds with the robots and the cars where. It sounds vaguely familiar, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you had mentioned earlier about, you know, maybe THX is one of his more um, visually, uh, you know, a little more memorable than a lot of his later movies. Um, But I do think that there's this crossover with his use of space. 
there's a lot of like wide frames, little figures. Mm-hmm. And he uses that a lot in Star Wars too. Um, and especially with the, you know, the, the beginning and a lot of the stories that I heard from when I was a kid, um, you know, from my uncles who saw Star Wars and they were at that perfect age for seeing it in the theater. And that first image was this giant ship come and then an even larger ship coming. Uh, and then you see like, um, you know, these vast desert landscapes and small R2 and small 3PO. So he always had that good sense of, of size and, 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 you know, spatial awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't really fussy when it comes to um, overcutting and uh, a lot of master shots. Um, so there is some overlap there, I think. And even in the prequels, there's a pretty good sense of that. Um, there are some kind of moments, uh, you know, the beginning of uh, Revenge of the Sith, where you see all the Star Destroyers, kind of like this big cluster. Mm-hmm. And then you see the small little ships with uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin flying through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are definitely moments of that. And it's the sound design carried through with stuff like the pod race. Uh, where he's telling story through sound and not really relying so much on on um, dialogue, right? And I, what's so memorable about the pod race scene is, um, so much of it is there's no score either. It's just like just balls to the wall, big engine sounds. Like mm-hmm. again, like really tapping into that that gearhead that um that he was when he was a kid, um. And then when it gets to that point where the score kicks in, it's like he does. He's not great with people (laughs) (laughs) and he never has been. Um, But yeah, I mean, he really he does know how to, you know, despite what, you know, maybe friends at the time or his his wife at the time said, he knows how to get to people emotionally through technical stuff. Sure. It doesn't always work in the whole, but I mean, even you know, say what you will about the prequels. There are each of them for the most part have moments that are just purely enjoyable movie. Sure. You know, um, I think too, and going back to a lot of these older stuff with, um, Coppola, um, I guess Coppola had impressed upon him the importance of casting. Uh, uh, you know, he said to Lucas, you know, if you cast the right people, then that does most of the work. So, you know, part of the appeal, a lot of these older movies are because of these great casts. And Duvall is pretty excellent in this. Uh, and Donald Pleasance. Uh, and obviously, you know, you have um, in Star Wars, you have, you know, Harrison Ford and um, Mark Hamill and uh, Carrie Fisher, which kind of anchor the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, on top of the, the big three, there's you know, Alec Guinness brings a lot to a role he had nothing but contempt for apparently sure, yeah uh peter cushing is the best. is great yeah and you know then later yeah. billy d williams is yeah so much fun as lando i sure. mean that could have uh i can't imagine that character being as memorable i mean the twist is memorable but that that charm and he brings something to those movies that just that wasn't there. Sure, and, and not not for a lack of trying. I mean, sure. Harrison Ford brings a lot of charisma to Han Solo, especially in Empire. Sure, and then obviously that carries through with the movies he produced in the eighties and the nineties, mm-hmm. um, and 
you know, co-wrote in uh, stuff like Indiana Jones. Howard the Duck. Obviously, Howard the <laughs> Duck. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, he cast uh, some talented people in the prequels and um, didn't work out so well. Right. And I mean, if we're talking about George Lucas's career through lines, um, he didn't want to edit THX at a... Well, I mean, some background here as well is this: this is the first, the first movie, and then the movie that killed American Zoetrope, which was the, you know, Coppola's grand idea to to make a studio outside of the studio system. They were set up in San Francisco. They were away from Hollywood. Um, they were going to do movies their way. the The reaction to THX sort of killed that. Um, suddenly, they had to repay the loan Warner Brothers gave them. He did The Godfather to repay that, and the dream kind of died. And that bombed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big flop. Um, but instead of editing the movie at the Zoetrope offices, Lucas wanted to do it at his house. He set up an editing bay in his attic. Uh, I mean, he essentially made the prequels at his house. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, I can't imagine it was easy to be Natalie Portman or Ewan McGregor and Samuel L. Jackson, you know, actors who can act just more or less in a guy's garage in a big green screen. Um, but you know, it's, it's sort of that stubbornness and yeah, along the way, what he gained in power, he lost in people close to him to sort of maybe keep some of his stubborn tendencies in check. Mm -hmm. Studio meddling has always been an issue for him. I mean, even to the point where the reason Robert Duvall is able to escape at the end of THX 1138 is that the pursuit has run over budget and the cops are told you got to stop. And that's how the movie ends. And like, they do make that one last plea. It's pretty great though. Yeah. They're like, we got to go back. Yeah. Do you want to come with us or not? Yeah. And he just keeps climbing that ladder. Yeah. And it's this beautiful kind of, uh, uh, final shot of him kind of going above ground and Mm -hmm. the sun is setting and it's this giant sun behind him, this silhouetted figure. Yeah, and you, I, I really didn't realize until that moment that they were underground or yeah. that the, there was no sky. It mm-hmm. just, um, yeah, and it's it's the most colorful the movie ever gets, really. Yeah, it's all grays and whites, mm-hmm. white on white. How do you, uh, how do you think this movie holds up? I enjoyed it. Um, I don't know how often I'd want to revisit it. It's not a very pleasant movie um yeah you know it's not the the whiz bang fun of star wars or um you know it doesn't have that that timeless coming of age thing that american graffiti has um but i enjoyed it i think i'm right in my original apprehension that uh you know 11 12 year old me would have been really bored yeah um i also don't know what my parents would have thought you know, as a family who enjoyed Star Wars, we would go and rent THX and bring it home and see uh, full frontal nudity, a um, it's really an, s- an attempted prison rape, and yeah. um, Robert Duvall masturbating mm-hmm. in George Lucas's first movie. It's kind of startling because he's like, and he used that to defend the prequels too. He's just like, oh, I make kids films, and that's what he kind of became synonymous with. Is this like? wholesome entertainment and toys that are associated with it to go back to this to see it be so like 
this is the ni- late 60s, 1970s, baby. We can do whatever we want. You right. Know? Uh, and um, it's it kind of jarring. It is jarring. And he talks about, you know, he like you said, he makes kids movies. He also feels, um, I get the impression that he feels or felt uh, obligated to do Star Wars. I, yeah. I don't. You mean past the first one? Um, yeah, it seems like he was always putting off what he really wanted to be doing. Yeah. And I can't. Well, he talked about after the, he's during the prequels, he consistently said, once these are done, this is the story I wanted to tell. I have no more to tell. I'm going to go back to experimental films. And that does ignore the history of him talking about Star Wars, which changes constantly. Mm -hmm. Uh, but this idea that he would go back to making movies like THX, um, kind of fascinating to me. So it's kind of a bummer that uh, it seems that the reaction to the prequels in the vitriol that's been kind of thrown his way uh, has kind of, uh, I wouldn't say stalled it, but it seems like it's put a kibosh on him uh, ever making anything else. Right. And I think it's, uh, you know, I think there's a an alternate timeline where we got to see what else he had up his sleeve in that, sure. you know, in that realm of filmmaking. It's not hard to imagine a world where between Star Wars movies, you know, even the originals that he, uh, he made these smaller, scrappier, um, experimental films. Yeah. And especially after, so uh, it's backtracking. We talked about studio interference. The studio cut four minutes out of THX. He was furious. Star Wars goes off like gangbusters. They re-release the movie in theaters with that footage put back in. Mm-hmm. He could have done anything. Yeah. He 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 wrote his own ticket. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know if it was just uh, if he was afraid that if he did something else, someone would ruin Star Wars without him there. I don't know. It just. It became so precious to himself, but it's. I wonder if he resents it. <laughs> yeah, it's strange. But now, there's no reason why he couldn't be doing those things now. He just doesn't seem yeah. like the type of person who's interested in there it. There are definitely interviews with him where he seems kind of burnt yeah. by the reaction by it. And especially when The Force Awakens came out, he's like, this is what the fans want. Just this passive aggressive way of saying like, oh, they'll be happy, but that's not what I want to do. Yeah. It's strange to think that someone that's always fighting against the system or believes of himself as someone who fights against the system is so governed by these reactions mm-hmm. of, you know, people not liking him. Yeah. Uh, those two things kind of maybe bump up against each other. Yeah. And, and, you know, or, or for someone who has been so committed to, uh, making it impossible to see his work as it was originally released, you know, his first movie is about, uh, you know, suppressing emotions and suppressing information and, um, that, but that, that, that clashes as well. Um, and even for, I don't know, there, there's value in having all iterations of these movies. I mean, uh, they didn't need to release all five versions of Blade Runner on a Blu-ray set, but they did because there's a story there. Sure. It's, it's part of the, if you're interested beyond the movie, it's part of the narrative of the yeah. making of it. And, Release the Christmas episode. Release the Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, George, why are you burying the holiday special? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I'm sure everybody involved is happier. 
<laughs> the cartoon's really cool. The animated segment's interesting. Oh, with uh, Boba, with Boba Fett. Fett. Yeah. And everybody's like really fluid. It's almost like a like a kid's Aeon Flux. Yeah, it's really strange. <laughs> yeah. It's been a while though, but it's hard to sit through. So I don't think I've ever sat through the whole Maybe thing. he's right. Yeah. This this time. There are weird musical numbers. Yeah. But it's been I don't know. Over over twenty years since I've seen Star Wars unaltered or un uh, you know, before the special editions. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? Are you um Yeah. Are you are you are you glad that you finally yeah. sat down with oh, us? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I thought it was good. It was really good. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know if I it's a movie I will constantly go back and revisit. But uh but I'm glad I filled in that um that blank space that that you know, now I've seen all of Lucas's movies. Sure. <laughs> There's so many. Right. <laughs> um so other big sci-fi movies from 1971 are um the Andromeda strain which mm-hmm. I've never seen. Me neither. Um Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Which one is that? That is the third one. So that's not the one where they're worshiping the nuclear no, missile no, no. around. The third one is the first time travel one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. this is the one that ends with Caesar being born probably. Yes, in secret. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I like all of the original Planet of the Apes. I think they're ambitious and they have wacky ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, another big one is the Omega Man, which I've also never seen. Oh, that's um was uh, yeah. It's it's the Charlton Heston one that's based off of I Am Legend. Right. Um, never seen that. And the biggest one probably is A Clockwork Orange. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's um. That's yeah. That's a dystopia more people were familiar with. <clears throat> But I think that has some overlap with THX. Oh, absolutely. I just, you know, I think, um, you know, one of them was seen by a much larger audience (laughs) than the other. Sure, sure. Um, And again, has more memorable things to it. Sure. I think for all of uh, the interesting ideas and visuals and and the sort of um, boldness of THX, it, ha- it you can't really hold a candle to the sort of unhinged depravity of a clockwork orange and do you think that thx is influential i don't know i know in um i watched this making of feature on thx 1138 and spielberg in it himself says that he thought it was hugely influential and mm-hmm. that because it was ahead of its time you could see sort of its influence on minority report certainly yeah, that makes sense. Um, especially with the way, um, you know, <clears throat> forbidding people to um, think for themselves mm-hmm. and, and with the pre-crime and, and minority report, shaved heads, white on white stuff. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, with just the, in a simple visual thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard to it's hard for me to say. Um, sure. Uh, and not the top grossing film of 1971, Fiddler on the Roof. I, I've never seen Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, and, uh, like ever in any? Uh, in, yeah. I saw my college theater group do it. <laughs> How was it? It was a college theater production of Fiddler <laughs> on the Roof. <laughs> uh, number two is The French Connection. Ooh. Yeah. All right. Diamonds Are Forever is number three. Um, and then after that is Dirty Harry, mm-hmm. uh, which I have also never seen. Billy Jack, which I don't even know what that is. Summer of 42, 
The Last Picture Show. Oh, great which movie. Which is pretty amazing. Uh, and I didn't realize that made so much money. Uh, Carnal Knowledge, A Clockwork Orange is nine, and number 10 is Bedknobs and Broomsticks. I haven't seen that in years. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, so based off of THX, is there anything that you would recommend to uh, someone that wants to follow the rabbit hole? Huh. Um, you know, when I think of dystopias on film that aren't directly based off of, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the seminal dystopia novels like 1984, mm-hmm. um, Brazil instantly comes to mind. You know, I did get a, I thought a lot about 2001, um, which, you know, is not a deep dive, but it does, for me, it, THX felt like uh, the flip side of um, the future that 2001 was presenting. I mean, forget that it's set in the 25th century as opposed to the 21st, um, but the the way that world is presented and a lot of clean, it looks like a, everything looks like a Mac store. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, without the, uh, optimism of human progress, uh, I mean, there's plenty of anxiety and fear in 2001, but yeah, I, I thought of that a lot with the visuals, especially. Yeah. So, um, I'm actually going to recommend something that, um, isn't a dystopian future, uh, but it is made by someone that worked on THX. And I'm going to recommend the only movie that Walter Murch has ever directed, mm-hmm. uh, and that is Return to Us. Ooh, I've never seen it. Uh, it's really great. Uh, it's kind of got that, um, you know, there's a number of 80s uh, children's movies that probably cross the line where maybe kids shouldn't be watching them. Mm-hmm. The kind of movies that would definitely keep you up at night if you were little. Um, so it's it's very different from the original Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't really follow the source material. It t- kind of takes a bunch of different, you know, kind of picks and chooses different um, Oz mythology uh, and does its kind of own thing. Uh, but it's about how Dorothy uh, goes back to Oz. But it implies that after the original, they thought she was crazy because she kept talking about Oz. So she goes into electroshock therapy. Oh my God. It's very dark. Yeah. So it, you know, has a little bit of overlap. Um, and then she goes back. And so Oz has been taken over by the Nom King. The Nom King. The Nom King. Yes. He just loves to eat. Yeah. He's like, nom, nom, nom. No, he, it's like this stop motion kind of rock creature. It's really cool. But yeah. Neat. Check it out. Um, maybe that's a future episode. Sure. It's pretty great. I think it's the Nom King. <laughs> It's spelled N-O-M-E. Well, whatever. I'm pretty sure it's numb. I'll cut it out. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Just leave it. <laughs> so uh, what are we going to talk about next episode? Next episode, we are going to take a dive into Queen. The um, the band, not not the not, not the, the woman not sitting the, on the... Not the person. No. I was like, you have some pretty good connections. We could get the uh, Queen in here. Oh, right yeah. Chat no, she's, a, she's a, a friend of the pod. You think we could have a tea with her? Biscuits. I think it would. I think that's the the minimum requirement of of hosting a podcast with the Queen is that there are tea and biscuits. Can we have tea and biscuits when we talk about the band Queen? As long as we don't get too much chewing on Mike, I think we can do that. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Queen. Um, you know, for me, I know I, I really just know the hits. Yeah. Um, same. Same. And I think. Uh, I think everyone of um, a certain around age. our age probably uh, became super familiar with them because of Wayne's, Wayne's World. World. Yep. Yeah. We're gonna actually listen to Queen, not just the, uh, not just the Block Party Weekend on the Classic Rock Channel. We're gonna, 
listening to a bunch of albums top to tail. Sweet. Cool. All right. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks for listening to this week's What Did We Miss? If you want to know more about the episode, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at What Did We Miss for links to some of the clips, videos, and research we may have mentioned throughout the episode, plus previews of upcoming shows. Drop us a line and let us know what you think, especially if we're talking about one of your pop culture blind spots.